Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, this is Steve, executive producer of the Webby Awards. I replaced Emma to do this ad. Do you make cool stuff on the internet, like design killer websites, run a hilarious social account, or make amazing podcasts? I mean, you've got to know someone who has a podcast. Everybody has a podcast. I bet $50 you listening to me right now have a podcast. Or, at the very least, you've been drunk and considered starting one. Anyway, if so, I'm here to tell you that time is running out to enter your work into the 24th Annual Webby Awards, where it'll be seen by some of the most talented people on the internet. The final entry deadline is this Friday, December 20th. We have a ton of new ways to honor your work this year, including new categories for voice, podcasts, social, student work, and more. Head over to WebbyAwards.com to learn more now. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. Everyone can dream and when treat people kindly. Start now. Activism. Meet internet. Go crazy. Sometimes geeks can be chic. Hey there, and welcome back. We have a very special episode today to close out Season 6 of the Webby Podcast that we taped just a few days ago here in the studio. You know, at the Webbies, we spend a lot of time looking at the internet, what's happening, how it's changing, but most of all, we spend a lot of time talking about what we want it to be. My next guest, Sinead Burke, is someone who is actively doing the work to create the internet we want. As the host of As With Me With Sinead, she interviews notable guests about what it's like to be, well, them, how they navigate life in their bodies, and how this can help everyone better understand what it's like out there for other people. Sinead's a real powerhouse. Her TED Talk, Why Design Should Include Everyone, sent shockwaves into the fashion industry, and this past fall, her activism work in that industry landed her on the cover of British Vogue's September issue. Sinead and I talked a lot about what kickstarted her passion for activism, and one of those defining moments we talked about early on was taking her younger sister shoe shopping, but not seeing herself represented. I am a physically disabled woman. I have dwarfism. I stand at the height of 105 and a half centimeters, but I'm the eldest of five children. I have three sisters and one brother, and I think as the eldest, I probably saw it as my responsibility to bring my sister shopping. Hmm. as facetious as that might sound. And I can really remember being 16 years old and being in a store with my sister Natasha and picking up a pair of high heels. And Natasha kind of tapping me on the shoulder and saying, you know they won't fit you, right? I was like, what do you mean? And she was like, your foot is smaller. Like they don't make shoes like that for people like you. And there was no maliciousness and there was no desire to hurt me with that phrase. She was just really being honest. And as ridiculous as it might seem, it never dawned on me. Because despite living in a body that is of a little person, I forget most of the time because I don't have to see it. And I was really upset in that moment, not necessarily because I couldn't buy the high heels. But for me, I was older than my sisters. I had more money than my sisters. 
the heels would mean more to me in a sense that when I was wearing them, people knew that I wasn't a child. And I cared about fashion in ways that my sisters didn't. And yet, because I was never considered within the system of the fashion industry, I couldn't participate. And I remember just feeling it was terribly unjust. And my way into it was... How old were you at that point? Did about you? 16. Okay. And my way into it was like reading everything I could about fashion. So I used to sit and read like WWD and the business of fashion and the Financial Times and knowing how the business of it worked because if I could do anything to shape it, I've always been wildly ambitious. And for me, I was interested in fashion in terms of advocacy because I felt that it was the one industry that every person on the planet had some sort of connection to because Mm. we all have a legal obligation to wear clothes. And yet if this was something that I had to adhere to or be arrested... (laughs) Why couldn't I participate in the same way that everybody else could? And it was also that if I'm sitting across from you in an Everlane sweater that has been ethically considered and made, that tells you about me, right? Right. But I couldn't go in and buy things in the way that everybody else could. And my advocacy was never intentional. When I was training to be a teacher in college, one of the assignments was to start a blog. And it was actually for specific classrooms because I don't know if you have children, but children come home from school every day and parents would say to them, what did you do today? And the child will say, nothing. And the idea of this blog was that in it, you would document as the teacher what was happening in your classroom. But we had to do it as an assignment. And the lecturer said, you can write about anything you like. And what he meant was in education. But that's not what he said. So I wrote about Cape Blanchette wearing Givenchy Couture to the Oscars. (laughs) Why as Irish people, we couldn't talk about Couture. But for me, the blog was this catalyst because it was on the internet. It didn't matter what I looked like. Very much in the same of having a podcast now. That it wasn't about me being a little person people's biases couldn't come to the fore because all they had to take from me was my words and my ability to construct an argument. And that built a community. And I did a TED Talk here in New York in 2017 about design, which was unintentional. I ended up here in 2016 to help with a friend and through lots of bizarre circumstances, ended up speaking to a room that I was never supposed to do so. And looking at the design of the room, everybody was sat all along the periphery, all along the walls. And I was very concerned that if I stood at the top of the room, I would have my back to some people and that would be rude. So I stood in the center of the room and rotated on the spot for six and a half minutes, having no idea what I said. And I came home and I got this email from a woman called Chi Perlman. And she said, hey, I saw your talk last night. It was great. Um, Quick question. Have you considered doing a TED talk? Because I work for TED. I was like, no. And over the course of kind of four months, we wrote this draft and this TED talk. And I have no background in design. I was really reluctant to do a TED talk on design because... I didn't think I knew anything about it. And she said, no, you have a lens through which you view the world that the design community needs to be challenged by. And yeah, so I spoke about my lived experience of something as simple as going to the bathroom. That I go into the cubicle and in most circumstances cannot reach the lock on the door because it's too high. And through that, I go through this whole procedure of either using my phone to kind of nudge it across or I take off my jacket, my coat, and I put it on the ground in the hope that somebody will see it and not come in. Or I ask a stranger for help. And then I come out of the cubicle and I cannot reach the sink to wash my hands. I cannot reach the hand dryer. But if I go to the accessible bathroom whilst I can wash my hands, I cannot use the toilet because it's deliberately designed higher for wheelchair users to transfer across. And in this, my thesis and my argument was, you know, this isn't just about bathrooms. Because if we're not designing bathrooms, particularly in public spaces for different types of people, we are literally putting a timeline on how long they can be in those spaces that we're saying to members of the trans community or members of the disabled community, you know, you're only allowed to be here as long as your bladder will allow you to do so. And my argument with the design of bathrooms, I understand that commercially, perhaps it doesn't make good business sense to put a low sink in every bathroom because there aren't many little people. But there's lots of children. Right. So within this design process, like who are we thinking about? And are we just thinking about one user who looks like the architect or the designer? And 
that's probably a white, straight, cisgendered, able-bodied man. Right. At least historically it was. Yeah. So that kind of all came together and from TED led to lots of opportunities which culminated this year in being on the cover of Vogue. And it has happened in some ways accidentally, but I don't want that to appear like I haven't done any work to get to those moments sure. too. But yeah. it's been serendipity with a lot of tireless tenacity. As all things. Right? Yeah. <laughs> One of the great things about you being on the cover is that there's lots of other people out there in the world who aren't represented in those pages and never have been in many different ways, not just in the way that you weren't represented in those pages. And to start seeing people who are represented differently or maybe more like them in those places is a reflection that they are part of part of that world as well. But when you were looking at those pages, you weren't represented. What was it like to be somebody who is so avidly a connoisseur of vogue and fashion and be essentially not there? Is that a fair question? Yeah, but it wasn't just in fashion that that was my experience. It right. was everywhere. So it seemed it's it was sort of normal for you because that's how it was in every single thing you did. Yeah, and I don't want that to come across as, you know, somebody needing to play a tiny violin for, right. for my half. But I grew up wanting to see myself represented in film, in television, in the books that I was reading in school, in the Barbie doll that I was playing with, in the magazines that I was reading. And, you know, I'm 29 now and... I go forward and I look, Peter Dinklage is doing amazing work in Game of Thrones. Warwick Davis is doing brilliant work in Harry Potter. You know, we have Fran Mills doing great work in Harlots and HBO. But, you know, Fran doesn't have the same platform that Peter Dinklage does. And, you know, the most amount of representation that stories like mine have is on reality television, mm. where even in all of those different people that I've just mentioned, none of them are writing the script. Right. Right. They're playing parts and they're protagonists in a storyline that somebody who doesn't look like them has created. And for me, I'm very lucky that I'm an incredibly loved child and my family are the most extraordinary people who, when I said to them, you know, I was writing a list of things I wanted to do when I was 18 and I was like, I want to be on the cover of Vogue and I want to go to the Met Gala. My parents were like, that's lovely. Great. Right. We'll support you. Yeah. And for me, I think, you know, the greatest part about being on the cover of Vogue has been parents and young people with dwarfism reaching out and saying, I didn't know that this was possible. And now that it is, I really want to do it too. Or actually, I have no interest in fashion, but I really want to work in medicine. Or I want to be an engineer. Or I want to work in my local supermarket. And, you know, now that one thing has happened in this space, there's no reason, there's no barrier anymore for it no longer to happen in others. And it's my job, or at least I see it as such, to help cultivate those opportunities for other people now. So how do you how do you then take the this being on the cover and this thing that just happened here, how do you sort of move that forward and, and what's the way that you think about, like how do you build upon that? It's, is that through your advocacy? Is that something you think about? Yeah, all the time. In every project that I'm part of, even something like this, there's kind of four questions that I ask myself. Does this fulfill my goals and dreams? Does this pay the rent? Does this give back? And does this bring other people with me? And in everything that I say yes to, it has answered more than one of those questions, usually at least two. And like being here in New York, like this evening, I am going for coffee with a young 18-year-old woman who has dwarfism I've never met before, who lives just outside of Brooklyn. And I'm going to meet her for coffee and she was like, I really want to work in fashion. Which college should I go to? I'm like, I'm not sure of the various different academic institutions in this area, but why don't we sit and talk about what it is your long-term goal is, even if it's just right now, and figure out what I can do to help. Mm. And actually deliberately finding the time to be able to do that is really important to me. 
And then it's about like working with big fashion companies about, you know, it's not just about having disabled people on the runway or having disabled people at the fashion shows, but actually what are the HR policies that we have here? Are we asking or inviting people that if they need sign language interpretation for an interview, are we making sure that that's available and that somebody doesn't even have to ask for it, that we offer it initially? Are we working in an accessible building? How have we thought about the lighting and the sound ambience in our stores? Are people with autism able to come in here? And it's more than just the physical representation of fashion. How are we thinking about accessibility as a starting point for the designing of our garments? How are we thinking about removing zips from the backs of dresses and ensuring that they're on the side or maybe we're not using zips at all? And it's about looking at it as like a systemic approach and then it's also spending three days a month in schools voluntarily talking to children about whatever it is that they want to dream of doing and giving the encouragement to do so using my personal story is a case study for those broader things, but it's constantly trying to think broader about it not just being me. And that takes time, but it's the real privilege of the position that I occupy. What do you think it is about fashion that is so important, if, if you think it is important? I'm always conscious that, you know, talking about fashion, there's often an opportunity that you present this image that it is idyllic, and there are many problems with it. It is the very definition of a problematic industry, both in terms of how it impacts the environment, in terms of how it impacts different types of laborers and workers, particularly in developing countries, how it prioritizes one definition of beauty and how we almost adhere to it or assimilate towards it. But for me, I think clothes are one of the few things that touch our skin. We have both an emotional and a tangible connection to it. And... I think it goes back to that piece of, you know, if I have to wear clothes every day, I want at least to feel seen and heard within it. And for me, fashion is this incredible force that connects to every other industry, right? So depending on whatever your politics are, but, you know, Nancy Pelosi coming out of the White House wearing an orange Max Mara coat means something. And if you think she accidentally woke up one morning and wore that coat that day, you are kidding yourself, right? Or... Uh, NFL team coming out dressed in Tom Brown and Tom Brown is a designer based here in New York which focuses on a palette of all grey and it's like a schoolboys uniform from a British boarding school and if the NFL these guys who are 15 times my size and diameter are wearing tight shorts and preppy socks like that means something right but in the same way if brands are stepping forward and saying you know we've just hired a chief diversity officer in Chanel a brand which historically perhaps you wouldn't link to the importance of inclusion or diversity that has a value. Right. And my family are not interested in fashion in any way in which I am, but they can name probably five to 10 brands because fashion has permeated our social consciousness in ways that many other industries haven't. And if this industry steps forward and says, we need to do better about the inclusion of different types of people, what impact does that then have on politics? What impact does that then have on sport? What impact does that have on economy? And if fashion can lead the way and get this right, or at least begin to do better than most other are, what's the opportunity for others to step forward and do it in its mirror image? What does it mean that the NFL players wear Tom Brown? It challenges the definition of masculinity. Oh, interesting. Particularly in an industry like sport where, and I'm not the aficionado on sport and shouldn't be the one commentating on it, but my perception of sport and masculinity is so intertwined. And my definition of masculinity within that is not necessarily toxic, perhaps not liberal and feminist either, but for the idea of these gangly men to come out in clothes and attire that fits neither of those definitions, that's challenging, right? Mm. And is it just because there's a commercial aspect to it? Maybe. 
But actually, you wouldn't wear something that you weren't comfortable in. But who knows what comfort is, right? right? And I just think it makes you sit up and go, huh, that's interesting. And then how does that make the 15-year-old boy who is sitting at home reading Vogue because perhaps he hasn't come out yet, but he is queer and loves fashion, and yet all his family are only interested in sport, and the NFL team come out in something that's very fashion-forward. All of a sudden, he has a common language to share around the dining room table. And they probably didn't even realize they were being so forward about it. Right? Yeah. One of the things I love about your TED Talk is how you really walk us through us being the people watching it. Your experience at an airport, your experience mm-hmm. in the bathroom we've talked about here for a moment. Tell me about what it's like to use the internet. Is Do the challenges that you or other disabled people might find in design of the real world, um, and I guess specifically for you because you can speak to that probably mm-hmm. better, um, do those things go away when you're on the internet? Or, or is it like an equalizer or is it just sort of a transport of the same issues into a digital space? It's my quotidian and daily experience that if I'm walking down the street, maybe at home, people would stare, point, laugh. And often there are times people take photographs of me without my consent. And then sometimes it horrifically kind of gets physical. I don't experience that level of harassment online. I think over the past 18 months, the platform that I have on the internet has grown beyond my expectation. And that has brought about perhaps the odd comment of somebody, you know, cleverly thinking of putting the word midget under a photograph that I post on Instagram. And in many ways, that says more about them than me. But I'm very fortunate that despite making my height and my disability very visible on the internet, I don't attain any sort of the criticism or the harassment that I do in my everyday life, just walking around and being myself. But I think the internet is challenging. You know, it has given so many advocates who perhaps are disabled and for whatever reason don't or can't leave their home. It has given them both opportunities for employment. It has given them opportunities for advocacy. And it has brought to every other person's consciousness different types of conversations. But I think one thing that it has done is still underline the fact that disabled people are not often included in so many important conversations. So even something like many states here in the U.S., have recently banned the availability of plastic straws in public places for sustainability. Right. Which in many ways I understand, but I do have questions about because lots of disabled people require those plastic straws for their own independence. And when we calculate how much plastic it is taking out of the environment based on then disabled people not being able to exist in those places, it really doesn't compute. And actually to see the involvement of that movement gaining further acceleration without the inclusion of disabled voices really makes me question, you know, Is the internet a space that can redefine who gets to participate or is it just conditioning us to the same types of people and voices? And I think you look at that with influencer culture, you know, the idea that different types of people get to participate in some ways. Yeah, but it's also just redefining what is beautiful and what and Mm. who gets to be famous and well-known. But I think the internet is a place where we can all be more conscious of how we look at and use accessibility. Something as simple as the social media platforms have to be more inclusive of including like alt text, which is what screen readers read for those who are visually impaired. So if you post a photograph on Instagram, a screen reader can't tell the individual what is in that photo. So you need to detail it. But we live in a world where like Gen Z put emojis and emoticons as a caption and don't describe anything. And, you know, for me with kind of the podcast and as me with Sinead and working with Lemonada, accessibility was a key focus of that for all of us because an audio medium is not accessible to those who are deaf. Right. So we transcribe every single episode and make sure that it's available. 
immediately as possible as the episode is to ensure that we're thinking about different types of audiences within that. But it's it's better, but there's still harassment and ableism and all of a sudden your tweet can be retweeted into somebody's profile who for whatever reason just wants to cause you harm. And I think we all need to be better at minding ourselves within those spaces. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Just to go back to your, your example about the straws, there could be an opportunity for more discussion. Certainly, maybe I'm wrong, but it, it feels like there is a chance that more voices could be heard in that place. It is a medium that more people could access and have a voice. And, and certainly we've seen lots of different types of voices mm-hmm. that we didn't used to hear before on the internet. We hear them now. But at the same time, there's like an amplification of of it. So like yeah. it's almost... It's almost, it's great, but it's also worse because it goes faster. Right. right? And everything is about reaction. Yeah. And there's no space for nuance online or it's becoming less about that. And, you know, if you're having a great day and you post a tweet about it, it probably won't get much engagement. But if you're having a rotten day with a specific company and you want to be outrageous about it on the internet, these platforms are deliberately designed to cultivate that because it has a greater impact of making money. Right. So what happens within that? for disabled people who perhaps don't fit within that algorithm how can we proliferate it and actually whose responsibility is it to mediate that nuance who gets to say actually these are the type of voices we need to hear from and I think some of it comes down to the ordinary individual when I go into schools I talk to particularly young people all the time you know who are you following and how does that define not only the types of content that is appearing on your timelines but actually the language and the vocabulary that you're now exposed to Because whilst I'm happy to sit in this podcast and teach people about the language that I prefer, it also shouldn't be my job, but I'm happy to do it. But we all have a responsibility to do better within that field. And I think if we are willing to listen to different voices, we have to actually create an action. So whether that's subscribing to a podcast where disabled people are presenting or producing or, you know, people of color and still processing in the New York Times and they're talking about the issues that affect that community and those two individuals, then like we all have a job to participate within that in a really tangible way. Was the internet a natural step for you for, for the podcast? And I should tell people you have a podcast out, uh, it's called As Me with Sinead. First question would be, was a podcast the natural place for that type of work? And, you know, be sort of like, was the internet the natural place for that as opposed to, I guess, like a radio show or something else? I never intended to do a podcast. Two Christmases ago, I did a phone interview for DeRay McKesson's show, Pod Save the People, which is kind of a big deal. We love DeRay, And yeah. he's great. And I 
knew of his advocacy work but didn't wasn't really familiar with podcasts and I recorded it in like the attic of a hotel because it was the only place that I could get signal and I did this interview for his show and I enjoyed it and he was great and thought nothing of it. The producer of his show is Jessica Cordova Kramer who's just set up Lemonada and in February of this year I got this email from her where she was like hey we're setting up this podcast company and our second show is all about human conversations and we think you should host it. And I almost didn't respond because I thought she was going to ask me for my credit card details in the next email because <laughs> it sounded too good to be true. And I emailed it on to my mother and I sent it on to a couple of people I work with. And I was like, "Like this sounds a bit hairy, right? Like this is everything that I've wanted. And yet why do these two women in America who I've never met, like why do they think I am the right person for this? Like this feels, it, like what's the catch? And... It was just so transformative that the idea, again, I think much like my blog in the early days, like it doesn't matter what we look like. What matters is the type of conversation that we have. And in the conversations that Asmi with Sinead brings about, you know, there are, there are four questions in the show. How do you describe yourself personally and professionally? What's the monologue that's in your head? What's it like to live in your body? And what gives you hope? And that's the framework for building an empathetic and vulnerable conversation with either Jamie Lee Curtis and Victoria Beckham or DeRay McKesson and, and Dan Levy and Extraordinary People. And it was just so thrilling. And I am curious as a person, which is the polite way of saying that I'm deeply nosy. So the idea of sitting with people that I really admire and has underpinned all that I've said with my advocacy that disabled people are not just individuals to take inspiration from and then feel better about yourself and your world. But I wouldn't have a podcast if I wasn't a little person. I wouldn't have this show. I wouldn't be sitting across from you because the reason why I think I'm empathetic and comfortable with vulnerability is because I've been forced to be. Mm. Because when I'm in a bathroom and can't go to the toilet, I have to be really comfortable asking strangers for help. Which means I can sit with somebody and go, you were bullied as a child. How did that make you feel? <laughs> Almost like a therapist. But I have a master's in broadcast production for TV and radio. I did that straight after my teaching degree always because I was really interested in storytelling. But due to living in this body, the traditional media were always very interested in helping me tell my story, but always through the most sensationalist lens. Mm. I remember doing an interview for a radio show, and the first question they asked me was, when did you realize you weren't normal? And I remember thinking there has to be a better way to connect with people, to tell not only my story, but to help facilitate it with others. What are the skills that I need by which to do that? The technological skills. And figuring out how to learn a Zoom six, seven years ago is, uh, who knew it would be so helpful? Right, right. <laughs> Prescient. Yeah. Um, but why a podcast and why not traditional radio? There's such freedom with a podcast that is both its gift and also it's torture, that there are so many podcasts. How do you find an audience? How do you bring them with you? And for me, as an Irish person who has a podcast here in the US, how does that audience trust me? Not only the guests who are coming to my show every week, but I think when we invest in a podcast, we give part of ourselves, even though the conversation is happening at a distance. So it's been, yeah, a wild journey since it started in October, but I've learned so much about myself. What do you, I mean, so to that, what, what do you feel like you've learned from some of your guests? Can you give me any examples? So I asked Jamie Lee Curtis how she described herself, and she said that she is a constant work in progress and an artist in residence. And it's, you know, Jamie I admire for lots of different reasons, and when I told my parents that I was interviewing her, they could hardly believe it. 
and she is one of the few people in Hollywood, I think, who across generations, people know her from different things. So my Jamie Lee Curtis reference points is not Halloween, is Freaky Friday and A Fish Called Wanda, right? And the idea that when I look at her and I look at her lineage and where she has come from in Hollywood, she seems so sure and confident and put together. Yeah. And then you talk to her and she's like, not only do I not know what I'm doing now, but I haven't ever really known what it is that I'm doing and I'm really uncomfortable with praise and I'm also uncomfortable with criticism. And I look at her, I'm going, if this person who I think has everything based on whatever society's definition of that is and is still grappling with who they are, then actually it's okay for me to be doing the same. And then to like sit with somebody like Dan who wrote Schitt's Creek and has done so well in the Golden Globe nominations. And, you know, Dan was working in reality TV and... You talk to Dan and you're like, so, like, how did you think you could write Schitt's Creek? He was like, I didn't. I just did it. I'm like, I'm sorry, what? You, you just did? Or talking to Ridika Jones, who's the editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair and one of the first people of color to hold that role. And I said to her, like, how did you step into that position? You had just, Grayson had just left and he had had such a legacy within that publication. Like, how, how did you get to that space? And she was like, somebody needed to do the job and why not me? I'm like, what? Like, who says that? <laughs> like, who says that? Who thinks that they have the confidence by which to do it? And the boldness of just being like, well, why not me? I may not work, but why not try? Or talking to Ruth Madeley, who was nominated for a BAFTA award and is a wheelchair user. And despite them knowing that not only was she nominated, but that she won, she had to be lifted on stage in her chair because nobody had considered accessibility despite her winning as an actress who is a wheelchair user. And it's it's just made me see the world in a whole different way. And as somebody who already thought they were conscious and woke, it's made me realize that there is still so much to learn. And that's not a feeling to be overwhelmed by, but actually to embrace. Right. The Jamie Lee Curtis thing, it really surprised me. And it was almost like when I was listening to it, I thought, she can't be serious. Right. So she's just saying that to make the rest of us feel good about the fact that we don't know what we're doing. The one thing that I learned from Jamie Lee Curtis is that she is 100% serious yeah. all the time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, she spoke about, like, historically being funny and that sense of humor only being self-deprecating. Having watched Hannah Gadsby's Nanette on Netflix realized that actually self-deprecating humor is a sense of abuse for yourself and how she decides now not to be funny. So I think had I have interviewed her before Nanette reached Netflix, perhaps I would have had a similar opinion. Mm. But anything that I've learned from Jamie is that she is all business, all the time. Um, you also are studying for a PhD. I am, yeah. What, what are you studying? Human rights education. So the importance of giving children a say about matters which affect them, not only in the curriculum, but in the school. It's tied to the UN Convention on the Rights of the Children. Article 12 says that children have a legal right to have a say about matters which affect them. And I'm really interested in how do we take that legislation and how does it actually happen in the class? Because when I was a teacher, I felt so excluded and isolated because of things like I couldn't reach the light switch in the class or the children were bigger than me. And in many ways, probably through my own narcissism, I felt like I was the only one in the room who felt like that. But I taught in some of the most challenging socioeconomic areas in Dublin and quickly realized that my boys who were 12, you know, in the curriculum, I was supposed to teach them about homes and I was teaching them about cottages with thatched roofs in like rural Ireland, which they had never seen and probably never will. But there was no space in the curriculum to talk about the fact that 40% of my class were living in temporary accommodation and were homeless. And how much of design is not just about the physical space, but like culture and the different types of people we say 
should fit and get to exist. And I'm really interested then in terms of the PhD, like how do we bring the lived experience of the boys into the classroom? How do we validate that? And, you know, I had some kind of simple examples from teaching maths. You know, maths was super difficult to teach in my class. The boys didn't really see a huge use for multiplication and division. So I would teach mathematics through the local takeout menu and tell them the story of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And they would look at me thinking I was slightly bananas. And I'd say, well, Snow White and Prince Charming have gone on a last minute date and we have 60 euro to buy the Seven Dwarfs food. So one is a vegetarian, one's vegan, one's pescatarian, <laughs> giving me time to sit with those who were really challenged by it. And I remember sitting with one boy and I said, let's just work out the fries. And he said, great. One bag is 250, two bags of fiver. I was like, yes. Like, like amazing. Right. I wrote down the multiplication and he was like, what are you doing? I said, that's what you just did. You did maths. He said, no, I did dinner. <laughs> and like, we can laugh about that as adults, but he was being so serious because he didn't see the skills that he had at home because like himself and his brother would go to the local takeout quite often and like have a fiver, get two bags of fries, like great. But he didn't see any value for that in school because whenever we talked about multiplication, we talked about it in like abstract problem solving so he didn't feel like it was real and I'm really interested in like what can happen then when we bring that lived experience and those voices into not only the curriculum but like the ownership of the school how do they understand power how do we not only give children power but like relinquish it and yeah it's it's intriguing do you still spend time with young people yeah I'm in classrooms right I dedicate kind of three days a month to classrooms um and going in in a voluntary capacity so external to the PhD and just going into classrooms sometimes where little people are enrolled um, and other times just classrooms that invite me in and facilitate conversations about difference and disability and you know the first question I ask all classes is like where have you seen someone like me before and it's interesting because some of them will say TV, TV. somebody will say oh on the street corner last week or in the supermarket um, and then talking to them about I didn't choose to be disabled this is not something I got to pick and asking the children how many of you got to choose the color of your hair or the color of your skin or the religion that you believe in or the kind of family you were born into and allowing that to kind of help us understand that there's so much choice that we do not have about who we are but we do get to choose how we behave to ourselves and to others and to really give people a sense of uh, not to, to overwhelm them by that but like actually to have agency okay well there are things that I can do and there are things that I can make a difference in and it's probably the best part of my job. Sinead Burke, the podcast is As Me with Sinead. Thank you so much for joining us on the Webby Podcast. Thank you. It's been wonderful to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sinead, for stopping by the studio. If you haven't listened to As With Me with Sinead, take a listen. It's a great program that humanizes the way we all interact with and understand the world. Her now famous talk, Why Design Should Include Everyone, is available at TED.com. If you're making great stuff on the internet, today, Friday, December 20th, is the last day to enter your work into the 24th Annual Webby Awards, where you can join the ranks of the most creative people on the internet. Head over to webbyawards.com for more information. As always, you can reach me on social at DMDLikes. Our producer is Terrence Brosnan. Our editorial lead is Jordana Jarrett. Music is Poddington Bear. Claire Graves is our casting director. I'm your host, David Michelle Davies, and this is the Webby Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.